Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Finley McLaren is a strength coach, nutritionist, and podcast host of the Chatting Fit Podcast. He is an advocate of a low-carb and animal-based diet. Finley excelled in rugby and Olympic weightlifting until injuries curtailed his progress. After spending years battling a knee injury and searching for rehabilitation methods, he is finally pain-free. During this search, Finlay rediscovered the benefits of a low-carbohydrate, high-meat diet, as well as refined the fundamentals of what he creates, uh, what creates strength, both physically and mentally. Having experimented with veganism, vegetarianism, keto, and several other diets, he is confident that there are human-specific ways to eat. Finley wants to give a platform for voices in the nutrition and diet world to push back against the anti-meat narrative and help people reclaim their right to a healthy life. He is the author of Biohack Your Sleep, Achieve the Sleep You've Always Dreamed Of, which is available on Amazon. As the host of the very successful and entertaining podcast, Chatting Fit with Finlay McLaren, he has hosted interesting conversations with several of our former guests, including Dr. Anthony Chafee, Dr. Natalie E. West, Dr. Bill Schindler, and Belinda Fetke, among others. Finlay McLaren, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. What an absolute honor it is to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. You are such a stud. I'm telling you, man, like, like talents are not <laughs> distributed evenly in this world. And you have two right off the bat that I just have to say, I absolutely love your name. Finley McLaren is awesome. And you have That's one of my main talents. Dude, that is a great talent to have. <laughs> and the, your next talent is an amazing voice. You have such an awesome oh, voice wow. that I absolutely love. Trust me, I'm going to be laying on the mute button on myself for this conversation. You can talk about whatever. It's totally fine. Um, Mate, I'm blushing. I'm blushing heavily on the end here. <laughs> uh, super cool, man. Really excited to have you on. You're somebody that I found in podcasting world doing research mm. on some of um, you know the clients that we've invited onto the show and then re-invited onto the show. And I found some of your work that way. And I just love yeah. discovering shows like yours. It is so bingeable. Like, like finding an episode, you do a really great job hosting your guests. There's a really interesting storyline throughout. I think you ask really respectful conversations. Um, people on both sides of the, you know, anti-meat and pro-meat conversation. Mm. And, and your guests are absolutely incredible. I mean, you've only released about 30 episodes and we named some of the, the huge guests that you've had on already. It's a really great show. What made you decide yeah. to start podcasting? I, I appreciate that, mate. I appreciate it. I, I mean, because when I, when I think back and I look back on the, how I started on the episodes, I started, God, I'm just cringing on the first few episodes. I'm totally. like, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I can't believe it. You know, like, and the funny thing is, I feel like, when I listen back now, I, I now think of questions that would have been great to ask. And I think, oh, wow, that would have been amazing to ask. Well, that would have been amazing to ask. So like, I think active listening's got better over the time. But um, what made me start? I think the main thing was, and everyone, you know, had, the, I guess, a, an element of this experience was the pandemic kind of upheaved everything in my life. And I was at a loose end, like the business I was working on at the time, I, I was kind of sidetracked. And I thought, you know, I need, I need to do something while I'm in a lockdown to keep me busy. And, you know, and then I started researching stuff and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a throw at podcasting. And, you know, I did and got the opportunity to speak to some incredible people and it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I kind of put it down for a little bit and then I launched back up with it. It's, um, you know, me and you both, we were talking about this before the show, we're both kind of a one man band and a lot of this. And, uh, so keeping up to date with releasing regularly has always been a bit of a battle, but, um, you know, I love it and I, and I, and I 
I haven't really looked back since. That's great. Well, you're very good at it and I hope you continue doing it because it's, it's an awesome show. It's one of my favorites. I will from now on absolutely be listening to every single episode. It's really quite awesome. I appreciate that, Matt. You did mention the pandemic shaking things up and you have quite the story of that happening with yourself. As you mentioned, you are actually not in the time zone that our listeners might imagine by hearing your voice. You're not actually across the pond in London. Uh, you're somewhere <laughs> completely different. So I want to make sure that we talk about that, but before we do, I want to talk about your interest in fitness, how that evolved. Uh, we we talked we said in the introduction you know you excelled in rugby and olympic weightlifting were you always interested in fitness or how did that kind of come about yeah i it's it's a great it's a great question yeah i was always interested in certainly movement and activity like i was a hyper kid just super hyper running around all over the place like my parents were always like geez will this kid settle down and um and i was a cross country runner that was how i started i think my parents again they just said what can we just put this kid into and he can just keep keep running and keep running and run himself so his energy levels are a bit down so i started that at the age of about 6 or 7 um and i did i did kind of competitive running for probably 5 or 6 years and then play, started playing a lot of rugby had a lot of success in in rugby and i played um good school level rugby and ended up playing for the county in England. We have the different counties like you guys have states out in the US. And I started playing for uh, different county level teams. And yeah, it progressed from there. I just became rather obsessive with it, really. And at the same time, I was also, I was still running at the same time as playing rugby. I was playing competitive squash. I was playing competitive cricket. I was doing competitive athletics. I was in the gym like two hours a day at one stage I was banned from the gym by the uh the staff they were like this kid is is borderline crazy with the amount he's going <laughs> to the gym and uh, <laughs> you know so and that was where that's where the kind of love and the passion came from it I mean to, to the detriment of my studies at the time you know I was not focusing on work I really couldn't be like if you sat me in a classroom and made me focus on something then all I wanted to do was get up and leave. That was a last place I wanted to do was sitting down and, and inactive. So it just, it snowballed from there. Really. I, um, I kept picking up sports and then, you know, we'll probably talk about this, but then I had a pretty significant injury at the age of about 21 and I battled with a bad back from the age of 18 or 19, which I played through sports on. And, um, eventually I managed to fix that. I was, they, I had a doctor who really suggested, surgery referred me to a surgeon and the and the the solution kind of put forward for me as surgery at the age of a 19 year old I was really not happy with and you know from there then that sort of sparked my interest into rehabilitation and into how to build real strength you know rather than just crap technique in the gym which is ultimately the only way I can describe my technique in the gym at the age of a 17 or 18 year old Wow. So I, I do have to ask you, like, is that when you decided to get into personal training as a career? Yeah. Age of 18, I qualified. I qualified in Birmingham in a place called the European Institute of Fitness. And I was, I was at a bit of a loose, a, a bit of a, you know, at that age, I find like, this is more of a societal issue. Like I feel like kids are pressured to know exactly what they want to do by the age of 18. Yeah. And like they're pushed into career path, paths, they're pushed into like deciding these super expensive um, university courses that may, they may not even feel like they want to do in the, after four years, after four years of finishing. So I, I was kind of, I decided not to go to university at the age of 18, but I, try, I moved to London and I tried a few different sort of business 
jobs, you know, trying to work in a media company, trying to work for an insurance broker. And I just hated it. Again, like you put me in a chair and maybe stare at a computer, although that's exactly what I'm doing right now. <laughs> then like, you know, then, then I hated it. So um, I thought, you know, I, I need to do something more active. And I had this affinity with strength training and, and, um, and weightlifting. And I went off to do this, this personal training course. So yeah, I qualified at 18 and then started working in London. Yeah. And you mentioned that your injury was kind of after that you played through it and it really kind of peaked around 21. What would you say you learned from personal training about how to deal with your injury? It's cool that you were already like mm. really averse to doing any kind of surgery and you already knew you didn't want to do that. But did you learn yeah. anything really significant through personal training about how you could maybe correct the problem yourself? Well, I would love to say yes, but what I learned, I mean, at 18, just qualifying, I really didn't have a full understanding of what people maybe who are 30 and 40 have gone through having been living a sedentary lifestyle and, you know, weren't moving around so much and weren't still benefiting from like the real core of youth. So I was going from a kind of warped mindset at that age. And I think that's a problem in the industry with a lot of personal training stuff is like some people go into personal training and have never had experienced having lost mobility or having, um, you know, to juggle a lot of different stuff around movement, you know, guys who work 12 hours in an office and are still trying to get into the gym and have been sitting in a desk all day, all of that stuff. So I had really no understand, very little understanding of that. And I'd only come from a background of, um, I'd kind of lived off this. I'd never lost my movement abilities from the age of, you know, seven all the way up until 18, until I started having these back issues. And that's where I met, you know, I, I always shout out to him. He's one of the most pivotal people in my training and strength career is a guy called Mike Causa. And he runs the Olympic London Olympic Weightlifting Academy. And he's an he's so knowledgeable. And he basically taught me how to Olympic weightlift properly. He taught me how to really dial in my training properly. And that was the first stage I had um, at really starting to understand how to manage someone's body, but I didn't know how to transfer it to myself. I needed him as a guider constantly. Um, in you know, and that fed through into my long attempted rehabilitation battle. And he definitely taught me about, you know, the principles of not overtraining and you know, getting your percentages right and, you know, prioritizing some of the key muscles like your, and your posterior chain and, you know, all these beach muscles that we think are, you know, massively overtrained in most people's lives, you know, your biceps, your chest, your abs, your, and, and I say overtrained, generally they're really fucking weak in most people. Yeah. They're just big. And so again, he taught me about, you know, some of the real biomechanics of the body. And that was when I was about 19. And, you know, I was still, I guess maybe we all go through this, but at that age, you're just, you're, you're kind of a bit pig headed. You think, you know, it all. So when you learn one new thing, you think you've learned everything to know about that thing. And that, that it took me a long time to unpack what I'd actually been taught. Um, so I guess you could say, yeah, I learned a lot from that stage, but it, it took a long time for me to know how to translate that into, um, my own training. 
Sure. Uh, that's super interesting. I want to deep dive into that. Before we do, you're going to love this. So this was a few mm. years ago, but I had a client who came to me that said, look, I want to train two days a week. I've got a trip I'm taking. It's four months. I want this specific program to get me these specific results in this amount of time. For a personal why was trainer- she, Why was she at you? She knew exactly what she wanted. Oh, amazing. <laughs> right. Like it, We never get clients that are that detailed in what they want. And so for a trainer, yeah. like this is our background. Like, oh, great. I'm, I, I, I broke everything down and the macro cycles and the micro cycles and everything that we were going to do. And the first day we came in, I'm like, great, we're going to do pull day. Let's start with deadlifts. He's like, no, I want to do biceps. And I was like, well, uh, no, we're, that will be like the end of the program. Let's focus on the big muscle groups. Like, nope, yeah. I want to do biceps. <laughs> so okay. literally, literally he paid me twice a week to do, to do chest on one day and biceps the other day. And yeah. I remember, I remember thinking like, well, at least I'll show him every variation of a bicep curl to do. And I'll set the weight down on the <laughs> ground. So I at least know that he's getting one rep of, of, of somewhat of a deadlift. Yeah. <laughs> Super funny. Yeah, That's what like, everybody wants to do. Yeah. It's like, I appreciate you trying to teach me how to deadlift, but how does this make my biceps bigger? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. On, on that yeah. note, I think a lot of people think that personal trainers, you know, since we all have like standardized certifications that we get, we, that we're kind of like really homogenized, but all of us have different mm. experiences and different other certifications that we've gotten and other things so that we've true. done in the past. And I, I can say like me and my wife, we're both personal trainers. She has a completely different brain than I have. Mm. And while I struggle, it's been, you know, 16 years that I've been a personal trainer now. I still struggle with corrective work. She can mm. see it in somebody walking across the street half a mile away and identify those kinds of things. So if you don't mind, could you talk a little bit about the difference between training somebody who really moves efficiently maybe they do a functional movement score and they score like a 19 or an 18 out of 21 they're, they're moving great they can just kind of go through a standardized personal training pro program versus somebody mm. who maybe has a lot of movement deficiencies if you want to call it that or maybe some of the injuries mm. that you were talking about can you describe the difference between like standard personal training and personal training for corrective purposes mm. yeah i think it's i think it's a big it's a big topic and i think standard personal training well, I can only talk about I can talk about my experiences, the way I approach a new client and the way I approach starting with a with a new person. It's if they are pain-free, for me, if they're pain-free, they've got a few of the standard movements that they can go through. They're not complaining of any overly over overt tightness. So I'll take them through, you know, I'll have a look at, you know, I generally look at how they're moving when they walk in. But if there's no outright, if they have no pain, they're not complaining of anything, they're not complaining of any impact injury that they've had then we can start you know having a look at some of those some of those main movements see if they can squat see if they can lunge see if they can press something overhead see if they can row something see if they can see how they are with single arm versus or unilateral versus bilateral and then from there then we can just start to build so then it's really only a case of the sort of rehabilitation stuff if they are complaining of an injury and it may be that as we start going through some of those training programs, then we start to get a small tweak. And once we know where that's, it might be that they start complaining of a little bit of elbow pain after we've started doing some rowing, you know, a couple of weeks in or a week in. And that's where I will start building in some more, I, I almost hate the term rehabilitation stuff because it's more strength building in the areas that need to be strength built of strength. That's how I view it. So that's when we will start to either regress or progress in different areas based on what that training program kind of tells us. I think there can be an over-focus on trying to analyze a movement, see how someone's moving and trying to make an extrapolation of what's tight and weak from there. So rather than seeing like, hey, what's actually painful 
for this person? What can this person not actually do in a movement when it's loaded? So that there's the, um, you know, there's the great analogy I like to use, which is if you take a, a back scan, you know, an MRI back scan to a doctor and show them a bulging disc, then they'll tell you that that bulging disc is the reason that someone has back pain. When really, like, if you look at the actual correlations between bulging discs and back pain, it's only about 50-50. It's, it's, it's not a guarantee. So people can, move, people can move in different ways. It's just a case of, is that movement restricting them? Is that movement giving them pain? Um, and then standard personal training is very much a case of you're going to put this person through this program regardless of what they tell you. And you're going to, you know, maybe a little bit of regression or progression in, in some other places, but really you're sticking to a rigid program or, you know, some personal trainers out there, I don't want to badmouth the industry, but some personal trainers out there who'll just wing it. Yeah. You know, they'll say, oh, you know, however the person feels on the day, okay, let's, let's chuck in uh push pull lift today and let's chuck in some deadlifts today and then forget what they did the last week and then do the same again the next week or something on from there. Yeah. No, I observe that in the community center that I go to to lift weights in my neighborhood, they have some kind of staff of personal trainers and you can tell they're completely disengaged. They don't have a program that they're following. I see, you know, one girl, she's kind of leaning against a wall and the lady that she's training is doing, you know, like a rope bicep curl and then a different version mm. of a bicep curl or a tricep mm. press. And I, I just, you know, the trainer inside of you wants to walk over to that person and say, what is the purpose? Why are you doing yeah. these movements that you're doing? What is this person's goal? Mm. And I think it gets so easy in this industry. Like, you said, either, you know, hire a trainer who doesn't really take the time to assess your goal, see what you want, connect that mm. to the, the true, you know, desire of the client. Like, yeah, you want to be strong, but what do you want to be strong for? Like going mm. that level deeper to find out you want to be strong because you want to be around for your grandkids, or you want to be able mm. to hike the mountains every weekend with your family. And, and, and there's such a vast difference between either the trainer that again is very disengaged or the person putting together, you know, those cookie cutter programs, like you said, like mm. those are available everywhere. And they're fine. I just wish more people mm. would hire a good personal trainer, even if it's mm. temporary, a few sessions to watch the person, watch how they move and, and mm. work together, workshop with that person to find better exercises, good exercises that work for that person to get a desired outcome versus just throwing random exercises at somebody. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that there is a benefit that you can get from those cookie cutter programs if, if you're not getting pain from it. You know, it's a big, like the body is so good at, you know, telling you what's, what it doesn't want to do and it doesn't want to do it for a reason, you know, and that might be a muscular imbalance or a muscular weakness. But so some of those programs are really good, but you know, it's, it's the person it's, you know, social media is great for lots of things, but for disseminating bad fitness information, like it, that's one of, it really does that well. It disseminates bad information really well and it disseminates good information really well, but it's really difficult for the layman to understand what's good and what's bad, especially when, I mean, the, we were talking about this again, just before, like the exercises that are good for a person in the, in the final stages of their prep for a bodybuilding competition are not the exercises that Jeremy, who's just finished his nine to five should be doing to get out of his, um, you know, his rounded shoulders and his kyphosis and, and his pain in his low back. Yeah. 
Yeah, you've mentioned pain a few times. And I wonder, is that the best marker to know when you should focus a little bit more on the corrective work versus, you know, working on, you know, general strength and personal training? One of my one of my mentors when I first started personal training told me that like you can if somebody has a bad shoulder, you can get lost in just doing corrective work on the shoulder. Mm. And if the person has a bad shoulder but they also want to lose weight, at some point, like you have to get them the results that they want. So so mm. is pain the best indicator for you to know like, okay, we do need to work, you know more mobility stuff on that shoulder before we can move on to more say strength training stuff that might get better results as far as body composition goes for sure yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it but i think it's it's a case of where is that pain you know if you have a if you have an ankle injury it's going to be very difficult for you to continue on that weight loss journey very depending on how debilitating the pain is continue on that weight loss journey without that injury getting worse if you don't deal with it in some way. But if you have, you know, a sore wrist, then, you know, ultimately you can still run and you can still, um, you know, you can do squats with a safety bar. You can do a lot of stuff with, while avoiding that injury. And at the same time, you know, I think, I think the general injury premise is, you know, train what you can train and rehab what you can rehab. Mm. So do what you can to get around it. And, I've seen amazing results with people just from, you know, a lot of the old physiotherapy stuff was, you know, rest. And I see that as a mis uh, as a lost in translation meaning whereby if you remove the, the stimulus that's, that's giving the injury pain and, but you still move, for instance, let's do the wrist, wrist injury or elbow industry injury, for example, if you still move, if you're still out walking, if you're still out running, if you're still out lunging, if you're still out doing whatever it is, but avoiding that injury. And at the same time, getting a little bit of movement into it, then in our minds, that's not rest. That's still movement, but you're still resting that joint. And the body has a way of given the right stimulus of naturally finding its balance again, given the right stimulus. So it's, it's removal of that movement. But a lot of people say rest as, you know, sit on the sofa and, and do nada. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, if I said rest to a lot of my clients, that means not only no workouts, but that means shitty diet. And like, mm. I'm not going to do anything. And it's like, even on an active recovery day for somebody training for a marathon or an Ironman, it's like, yeah, we're going to give you active recovery days. That doesn't mean, you know, be horizontal the entire day. Go on a walk, go yeah. cross train, go do something different. It, it doesn't mean take it all the way off. There's always something you can do. Exactly. Like, I'm a big believer in blood flow being one of those primary things that just like, because I just I always try and relate it back as much as possible to how were we meant to be? How how did we move before we were meant to move or before we learned to move? Because now we have to learn to move. We we kind of know how to move when we're a baby, and then someone has to tell us in a gym how to move again. So that we weren't always squatting, you know, when in the hunter-gatherer days, and we weren't always doing these you know, shoulder presses and stuff. We might have done let's say 10 shoulder presses or 20 shoulder presses throughout the week and then loaded ones. And then it might've been, you know, a hundred totally unloaded, but at different times, different angles, different places, you know, carrying different baskets, we're doing whatever. So that entails just general low level blood flow. Like, and that's what we lose when we're sitting down all day, we lose that blood flow. You know, these muscles get cut off, the tendons get cut off, like all of this stuff, the blood flow and supply of minerals and nutrients gets cut off. So just going out and walking and just, you know, even, even the basics, like it gets slated, you know, even sort of, you know, star jumps or just moving your arms up above your head, like 
10, 15, 20 times just to increase the blood flow. I'm not saying that's a workout, but I'm saying just stuff like that just gets more blood flow around the body. And then you can start taking it to the next levels of, you know, minutiae of rehabilitation or the minutiae of your training programs. But you need that low level sort of noise of movement and general general buzz just to have the body ticking over. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. I totally agree with that. You mentioned we now need people to tell us how to move. You mentioned in a recent episode with Dr. Bill Schindler, we now also live in a world where people need to tell us how to eat. That's a new thing oh, yeah. that we didn't have. You you talked about mm. misinformation in the fitness world. A huge amount of misinformation is in the nutrition world. So I definitely want to talk mm. about that. But before we do, we really- It's a minefield. Of, it's a minefield. It's crazy <laughs> out there. Yeah. To be able to tell mm. that story, we really need to go back to your personal story of how you became a trainer. You actually left the industry. Then you also mm. kind of got back to the industry. You moved, um, and then became a little bit more interested in nutrition. So can you go back to your personal yeah. story and share that kind of evolution? Sure. Sure. So yeah, up until, I mean, I was, let's say up until 18 or so, I was very much on a conveyor belt of sports. Like it was, I was working incredibly hard. The, the other analogy as I like to use, you know, you're in a sports car, you're going a hundred miles an hour on a on a motorway or a freeway, whatever you want to call it. And the cars next to you are going still, you know, 80 miles an hour. Or so you're slowly drifting past. But if you were on the side of the motorway looking in, you then say, oh shit, those cars are going really, really fast. But you don't realize it when everything is in perspective. So it was only once I'd sort of, you know, the injuries crept in and I started to lose a bit of my fitness that I started to realize at what sort of caliber I was at before. So after 18, I left uh left school and everything and i was still playing a bit of sport and i had this back injury i went to london and i started working uh full-time as a personal trainer and at that point nutrition was certainly a part of it but i had a very myopic view of nutrition you know all i'd known was high protein you get your protein shakes in um you know i didn't really care about dairy or wheat my mom was a celiac so i was kind of aware but i thought you know that's you know grains weren't an issue for me seed oils weren't an issue for me all of the stuff now that I'm starting to understand, um, you know, I was having sort of a bag of spinach a day, like all of this stuff that now I'm looking back, I'm like, Oh God, I'm lucky. I didn't get it. I'm lucky I got away with some, with what? only minor health issues. What were we doing? And yeah, it's, it's like these sort of, these sort of fitness dogmas sort of prevail. And then I went away and I, um, I went to, after I got to 21 and I, I had this bad injury and I couldn't lift and I couldn't, even it, it's a very strange mental thing as a personal trainer and a coach when you're injured, because a lot of my sort of, um, you know, confidence as a coach came from the fact that I was able to train very hard and I could, I had, you know, a, a very good level of fitness. But once I started having this injury, like, and I started feeling aches and pains, I found it very hard to translate to a client and say, Hey, look, I know what I'm doing here. Like a lot of that confidence was kind of lost. And that was why, that was one of the reasons why I ended up sort of moving away from the industry was that loss of confidence around what I, my own body and my own fitness. So I went off to university and I studied a, a degree in international business with agricultural trade and food production. So I was kind of still close to sort of nutrition and I'd grown up in the countryside and I was still working as a trainer at university, but only part-time. And I still maintain my fitness, but I was going through this stage of, I didn't know how, I thought I knew how to fix my injuries, but I really didn't. You know, I was going off a premise of, 
what I'd learned through with this coach. And that was great for building strength, but it wasn't necessarily great for the minutiae of, of, of rehabilitation. So I was still kind of training like I was a, a full-time athlete, but I wasn't. Um, and then nutrition was always fine. The nutrition always came reasonably natural, naturally to me. I never gained a lot of weight. I was more, I was always low carb. I was always high protein. I always prioritized meat, but I didn't know why I did it. It wasn't like I had a real solid foundation of that nutrition stuff. I just knew that that's what kind of bodybuilders did. And that's what athletes did. Um, we avoid like all the, the crap and the shit and like the chocolate bars and the, um, you know, the, the additive foods. Again, it was sort of an innate feeling that that was not going to be good for me. And then I went off and I did a master's in nutrition, physical activity and public health. And that's what we that's, I started getting my teeth back into the literature at that point. And I was raw. I was kind of a bit disenchanted by the whole thing because of the way that research presents nutritional findings is so different to what is reality. And, you know, we're looking at population wide stuff versus what works for the individual and population wide stuff is often kind of distorted and there's so many confounding variables. So a lot of the stuff they were telling me in these nutrition courses was, you know, a balance of grains and a balance of fibers and, you know, lots of leafy greens and all of this other stuff. And, you know, I, I was kind of, I, I sort of took that with a bit of a pinch of salt and I went off to, there was sort of an impetus after that, uh, after that year of masters and after learning about nutrition there. And I, I got offered a job in software in London. So going off and selling software. Um, and so I went off to London and I sold software for just over a year. And that was the sort of goal line I'd set myself. I would have been very goal oriented and I thought I've got to do at least a year in this so that I show that I've given it a good punt. Did you hate it? And I hated it. <laughs> I'm well, actually, maybe that's harsh. I mean, there were things that I loved. There were things that I loved. I loved the buzz. I loved the buzz of being on a sales floor, selling things for thousands of pounds and getting a really good chunk of commission from there. And that was an incredible buzz, but I hated not being able to prioritize my health and nutrition. And I hated answering to someone who I felt like, you know, their priorities were so different to mine, you know, bosses and, and higher ups and, and all this other stuff. So, and you know, everything that came with that office life, you know, drinking culture and, you know, boxes of sweets and biscuits going around the office and everyone going, Oh, just have one more. It's like, Oh, why are you so focused on your health? Or, you know, I, I used to get shit because I'd bring boiled eggs into the office and eat them in the morning. And no one had, no one liked me for that. So, uh, you know, it was a very foreign environment for me. And so I worked there for about a year and a half. And then I went off and started a, a business with a friend of mine in, again, a totally unrelated industry, trademark, trademark analytic, no, trademark registration software. And we, we did that for just under a year before the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, we took the opportunity, we said, look, while this business environment is as it is, you know, we're going to stop from here. And that's when I thought, you know, I'm at a total loose end here. We're in a lockdown. And then I started, that's when I really got my teeth into, uh, it was the end of my nutrition course, my my nutrition masters that I really started getting my teeth into my own knee rehabilitation. I I found a guy called Martin Coban, who, you know, dealt with, he wrote a book on fixing patellar tendonitis, which is great, but it 
is very labor intensive. It sort of requires you to put at least two hours to three hours a day into the rehabilitation process on your knee. Yeah. And even so, it still only gives you, uh, you know, it gave me a, a, a good base, but I had to avoid movements, certain movements. And then from there, then I started bringing back in stuff like rehabilitation guys like, or CrossFit world guys like Kelly Starrett. Um, and yeah, so then that, that was my, that was my flip out of personal training and then sort of my arc back in to, to fitness and nutrition really. Yeah. And then you moved right after that. Then I, yeah, I moved, I moved to Mexico. Well, I, 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 I thought, yeah, right. I'm out of here. I'm going, I'm going to Mexico. So the, so the pandemic hit in March, 2020, I booked my first flight to Nicaragua about nine months later just before christmas like november of 2020 and with no real plan i thought like i've got a little bit of savings in the bank i'm just going to go and travel for a bit like i'm wasting money's money on rent at the moment and i you know i say wasting i still had a roof over my head but you know i'm spending money on rent when i could be spending money on rent in another country if i'm not moving i'm not working and i you know i, I better to spend my savings on other ways so i got out so i booked that the first two flights were cancelled like, and they didn't give me the money back. What? So, you know, shout out to Aero Mexico for being absolute beep. Wow. Um, yeah. Like it was, it was, so eventually they gave me flight credits, which, you know, they, it was nearly impossible to get that rebooked. Wow. And eventually I ended up having an internal flight after I got to, I had those two flights canceled to Nicaragua and I went, screw it. I'll get as close to Nicaragua as I can, which ended up being Mexico. Got to Mexico was in Mexico for a week. And then I went to Costa Rica and I surfed for a couple of months. And uh, anyone who hasn't been to Costa Rica and you think it's going to be cheap, it's not cheap. It's really, <laughs> it, they call it, they call it the Switzerland of Central America. I actually heard that. So, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, you know, Central American country is going to be really cheap. I'm going to go out there. And I was like, I looked at my savings. I was like, I've got to calm down. I've got to get back to somewhere that's a little cheaper. So that's when hopped on a flight. I went back to Mexico, was in Mexico City for a little bit. And then I meandered my way up the up the middle of Mexico through different towns and got to Puerto Vallarta. And having I really didn't know anything about Puerto Vallarta before I got here. I'd I hadn't even heard of it about a week before I arrived. And the first thing I said when I arrived, it was it was sort of just coming into summer at that stage. And I think I'm never gonna live here. I'm gonna be here for two weeks. And I've been here for nearly nearly 18 months now it's amazing and yeah and i just haven't really looked back but it is hot as hell in the summer <laughs> yeah no we uh we took our honeymoon there in july after we got married and yeah it's pretty toasty oh, yeah. yeah pretty toasty that's peak sure. that's peak that's peak heat yeah. july in puerto vallarta totally mm. uh that's awesome okay so so a huge change and huge shift in your life obviously to be able to move there now are you at mm. this point still establishing your business and, and starting to work with people online and and working with nutrition with people yeah, so I'm working one-on-one -on -one with two or three clients out here. And at the same time, I've got a couple of online clients. But my main focus is to start to try and um, raise awareness around other things that I think are really important. So things like the anti-meat campaign, um, I'm really focused on my podcast. Things like that are, are taking more and more of my time. And as long as I've got enough money to survive at the moment, that's my, that's my main priority, survive and really start... I hit 30 and I thought, you know, like there's got to be a bit more meaning to this life than um, just exchanging one hour of time for one hour, you know, 
exchange one hour of time for that corresponding hour of money and and at the same time trying to get a message out that i really believe in and the only way and i'm sure you'd experience this as well but the access that internet the internet and podcasting and social media gives you to say what you believe and give a message across that you believe will really help people um so that's my focus is building that you know building your online work and connecting with people online that are really of the same mindset you know and 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 don't want to see it's a far cry from fitness and stuff but don't want to see farms shut down in the netherlands and don't want to see people online saying that meat is bad for people and people online saying that you know all of this other stuff and i know it's a it's a never-ending battle once you get into arguments with people online and i try and stay away from the comments and i try and stay away from the arguments but um i believe that we all have kind of a duty to to at least say what we believe and put our head a little bit above the parapet, especially after what's happened in the pandemic and these sort of overarching um, sort of government dogmas and dictates have come down, then we, we really stand at a precipice of that becoming a reality in all of our lives. Yeah, no, that's great. I think the greatest gift of the pandemic, you know, for those who got through it okay, was was really the time to assess the difference between money and time and understanding that, yeah, well, we were grinding all the time to get more money. Like, that's fine. But there's also this aspect of like, well, when, when can, what can I cut back? What can be enough mm. for me? And, and, you know, more extravagant things don't really bring me more happiness, but having more time to do a podcast, yeah. to go on more walks, to mm. enjoy the clients that we have and like really get to know them on a deeper level has been a really amazing gift. You've talked about this anti-meat message, which is uh, definitely counter culture. There's people talking mm. about it and certainly we are and you are as well. A lot of your guests are definitely talking about it and it's such an important message. How, how did that message come into your field of consciousness? Because if mm. you've done anything, like you said, in the nutrition world and your certifications, if you're paying attention at all to any of that, you know, mm. you absolutely know plant-based is best. You need more vegetables. Mm. You need more mm. grains. You need to have, if any meat, it needs to be very lean and non-fatty. Like, how did you start to kind of evolve your thinking as far as this anti-meat mm. message is concerned? That's a great question. It's a great question because I, I, I shoot myself back to 2019, end of 2019, just before the, the pandemic, I guess. And I was, at that stage, I was trying I was experimenting vegan diets and I was experimenting with vegetarianism and from no real, no real position of like, I think this is going to make my life better. It was just, you know, what's this hype about? I hear so much, so many people talking about plant-based stuff. Like I was still of the mindset that, and I, and I still am in, in, in many ways. So, you know, a high vegetarian, a high vegetable, like a veg, an intake of fruits and vegetables is good for you. You know, and I still believe that, you know, a certain amount is still good for you. But at that stage, I was thinking, you know, game changers had just come out and like there were lots of people singing about that. And I watched that and, you know, I was kind of taken in by it. And I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a whirl. That thing was and well I I, done. That was really, really, oh, yeah, really incredib well done. Incredibly, yeah, incredibly well done. Like if I watched it again now, I'd struggle to, you know, not be taken into totally. that. You know, you've got totally. this guy who's saying that he can go you know, 200% or 500% or 1,000% longer in his exercise and his workouts just eating you know, beans and, and grains and greens, you know, then of course, like it, it's going to get in the head, but, and there's still a lot of rebuttal in any of the posts these days. It's like, have you seen game changes or have you seen what the health or, you know, and these really well-produced stuff, you know, I take my hat off to the producers and the directors, like they're doing an amazing job. Like there's some great storytellers out there. James Cameron directed Titanic. Like, <laughs> come on. It's yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he, he's going to know a thing or two about telling a story and how to get a point across. So like it, it's, it's just, uh, so from there and trying that and feeling terrible on veganism 
and I'm sure I'll have any vegan shouting at me now going, you didn't do it right. Or, you know, X, Y, and Z, you didn't, you didn't have it right. And that may well be the case. Maybe I didn't do it right. And, you know, speaking to Dr. Bill Schindler saying the amount of technological input and the amount of thought process that you need into how to really make veganism work is far exceeds the, the capacity that most people have. And once things started happening, like, there was this huge, these huge pushes towards firstly in, in the pandemic, I, I became very disillusioned with, I was always a little bit disillusioned, but di- disillusioned with the government dictates and what was coming down the tracks and, and the amount of power that could be held over our lives from centralized power. And that's when the same noises that were coming out about that were coming out about anti-meat. And I stumbled across the work of Paul Saladino, Carnival 2.0 on, on Instagram. And then from there, I stumbled on the work of Dr. Anthony Chafee and a lot of it made sense, you know, and then, and then even Max Lugaveri talking about how his mother, who was on a low fat diet, developed severe Alzheimer's. Um, And he started looking into the research there about removing of saturated fat and how that could be, you know, really potentially harmful for our brains. And a lot of things sort of started to click into place. The fact that we had really there were the only fats we had in our diet were animal-based fats going back 50 to 100 years, actually more, probably 100 years, were, were animal-based fats. And, you know, you only have to look at the rates of disease and everything started coming in when we had the, all these seed oils introduced into our diet. And okay, you can say correlation is not causation, but then you have a look at what, what it meant for our health wise, once many of these highly processed foods and everything started coming in. And that's when a few things started to, to kind of click into place. And I started to increase the amount of meat in my diet and reduce the amount of leafy greens and reduce the amount of some of these, um, you know, so some of the carbohydrates that I always saw as great, you know, sweet potato and other white potatoes and stuff, which don't get me wrong. I think that's still, I still have them from time to time, but it was this, I still had in the back of my head that meat, there was a potential that red meat was bad. And that was had come from a lot of the media pushing and a lot of the this kind of this mess, this anti-meat message. And I've now totally reversed on that. And I still believe that processed meat is not a good thing for our health. But I believe that unadulterated, well-reared meat is very good for us, if not the most natural thing we can eat and the most nutritious and bioavailable for nutrition out there. So that that was sort of a, it was a gradual shift rather than like a eureka moment. It was like a gradual shift of, and then experimenting with keto and experimenting with other things, which just based around how I felt when I removed certain vegetables from my diet. And when I, rem, when I increased meat consumption and when I, um, when I was just a bit, more focused, less on eating a wide variation and a wide ve- eating the rainbow, for example, and focused on good quality of five or six key nutrients, you know, the sort of your good quality fats, your, you know, protein from animal sources, low, car- low carbohydrate. Um, and, and I still can't, I can't 
reduce my coffee intake. I find it very hard to reduce my coffee intake. I'm a complete coffee addict. <laughs> That's great. No, it's a really interesting arc of your journey. And it's very similar to a lot of people that eventually find this way of eating. And especially if you're in the industry, you have, you followed the advice. You did what they told you to do, mm. not only with yourself, mm. but with your clients. And so I'm curious, mm. as you were starting to kind of discover this way of eating, what was it like to not only feel a difference in the way that you were feeling, but start to present these new findings to mm. your clients and the people you were working with. What, what was that like for you? Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's always been the uphill battle and it's, and it's got easier since I'm doing the podcast because they don't just hear it from me. They hear it from these doctors, medical doctors, and people in the industry who are incredibly successful and in great health themselves. They're, they're, I'm letting them tell their story rather than me pushing it as a, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I've got experience in health and fitness, but it's been very much this starting to communicate with people in the industry that have been doing this for years and years and have got great results and have been on carnival for seven, eight, nine, 10 years, 20 years and haven't died and are in great shape, you know, and look great. They look young. They look youthful. They look strong. When I see a vegetarian or vegan doctor who you know, looks very meager, you know, I'm not judging a book by its cover, but I'm judging a book by its diet, but you know, they look very meager and you put them next to these, these, these dog, these doctors who are practicing what they preach in terms of, you know, high meat consumption, high saturated fat consumption, and they look incredible. So I try to elevate other voices that I think are really valuable there because I do have an uphill battle with, with people in the same way people would have had an uphill battle with me 10 years ago, you know, my, I, I was also one of those people that loved a bicep curl every day. And it took a long time for my coach to get me out of that, that methodology of doing bicep curls all the time. And because I believed that I was going to get smaller without bicep curls or without bench pressing every day or, or, you know, four times a week. So it took a long time to understand these things. And my clients have to see it for themselves because, you know, one guy, for example, he loves, he loves, um, you know, pulses and seeds and, and grains and stuff. And it's been drilled into him that, you know, high multi-grain and, and varied whole grain diet is, is, you know, the, the gold standard for nutrition. And it's, it's an, it's been a slow process to get him to, to at least entertain the fact that fatty steak is not bad for you. And now he will, you know, he will have a fatty steak a week, you know, which is a huge improvement from where he was, you know, and, and we, we have many, many problems that are, that are a little bit, that can interfere with nutrition as well. You know, we have so many toxins in the diet. We have so much plastic toxicity in the diet. I was speaking to Dr. Tracy Gapin the other day, and he's a big one on male testosterone. Our testosterone levels are through the floor. Yeah. And there's only a certain amount that we can do as men to boost that testosterone through diet and through exercise and through fitness until we get to a plateau, until this sort of generational damage has been done through glyphosate use, through atrazine use, through toxic plastic chemicals. So we're fighting an uphill battle anyway. But the things that people can do before they start looking at things like testosterone replacement therapy or going for expensive blood tests is to improve these nutritional areas. But yeah, it's an uphill battle. We're, we're fighting a, a huge media pharmaceutical, agricultural, industrial complex, which billions and billions and billions at its disposal to try and not get our message out, 
you know, to, to, to stop, um, people acknowledging that meat is really an incredible source of nutrition. So yeah, of course it, it only comes once you have that one-on-one time with people and you can generally, you build a relationship and you build a rapport and they start to see that, you know, the way this guy eats is totally different to most people. And, you know, we're seeing articles come out. I've seen it. I, I can't remember the, the Manchester city footballer who came out and said that he eats heart and liver and, and only meat and, you know, doesn't have any vegetables in the diet. And it's being sort of touted in the media as like weird diet from Manchester city football player. And this guy is at the top of his game. You know, he's scoring a goal a game. He's, he's ahead of people on in fitness and like in it, one of the top athletes in the world. And they're calling his diet weird. And for most people, it is weird, but we forget how, if we, if we spoke to someone 200 years ago or 10,000 years ago, depending on how you want to look at the advent of farming and the introduction of agricultural processes, then they would look at our diet now as crazy. We pretty much only, most people only eat chemicals. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, 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 it is weird, but going back through time, the new diet that we have is actually really weird. The standard American diet is totally weird. That's right. And it's just for the sake of not knowing anything different that we think keto is a fad or carnivore is a fad. Mm. You're right. Like that's, that's the way it has been our entire lives. And recently I've been trying to do more like thought experiments. And this is just a kind of a fun observational thing that I'll do. Like, like for sure, I'm, I'm outside of Salt Lake city right now. It snowed four inches overnight. The plants plant, wow. there's no plants, like plants are not growing. They're dormant. Mm if they are perennial, if they're annual, they're already dead. There's no food you, you couldn't, you couldn't like be transplanted here right now and be able to live mm. plant-based. <clears throat> we also just got back from a trip where we went to uh, South Carolina. We were there for about a week and walking around nice. South Carolina, it's much warmer. It's very humid. I, I can't mm. even begin to describe the diversity of plants around there. There mm. is so many different variations of trees and bushes and plants and grasses and all this stuff. And I marveled to, to see all of it and to see not one little speck of food. I saw one lemon tree growing in Charleston and it was oh, wow. definitely like planted there. You could tell it wasn't native to the area. You couldn't find that anywhere else. I saw mm. maybe one or two people growing gardens, which again, were done giving up food at all. And so now I want to ask you, you have more experience experience in climates that I would consider very lush, very, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they give a lot. They, they, it's very suitable for growing things. Mm. In your experience in Mexico and Costa Rica and all the places that you've been near the equator, did you notice food and fruits and vegetables and everything that we could consume just growing spontaneously everywhere? You know, it's a really good question. I think if I got out into the into more of the kind of wild areas, I'm sure there would be stuff in there that one would consider as food or someone from the area would be able to be like, yeah, you can eat that. You can eat that. I, I noticed lots of banana trees or plantain trees. That that seems to be kind of ubiquitous in a lot of areas. There's, um, but no, not, not an awful lot. I mean, again, like I think this pervasive level of uh, monocrop agriculture is just nearly global now. Like you, you drive through Mexico, you see fields of agave or you see fields of pineapple, um, pineapple plants. And it's, it's very, it's very rare that you get this sort of permaculture, uh, setup of agriculture where, where you have, you know, a pineapple growing next to a mango tree growing next to a, you know, which, which ultimately, from our understanding is, you know, gives that biodiversity and gives that balance, you know, that the, the, I'm not saying that it is an actual relation, but you know, the, the, 
the chemicals that a pineapple tree might give off might be the pesticides which protect a mango tree. So th- there is this incredible balance in nature that we lose from this loss of the, the, doing this monocrop agriculture stuff. But no, I, I'm sure someone will be shouting at the the screen right now or shouting at their podcasting app saying, yes, there is loads of food available. You know, just got to go out into the streets in uh, Puerto Vallarta and there'll be loads of it there. But it's um, what well, there is here is an incredible amount of tropical fruit. And I try and get my head around, you know, there's this constant argument in the carnival world. Should carnivals eat fruit? You know, Paul Saladino is a big advocate of having fruit in the diet. Dr. Anthony Chafee and others and, and Natalie West and everyone, you know, they're, they're anti. And my thoughts are, again, rolling back to the natural processes is like, I think we, and talking to Dr. Bill Schindler, I think we, we should have some, not should, but we can have some fruit in the diet and it'd be no issue. But the problem is, is that we can access it all the time now. Like I, to my shame, I think I've had a pineapple a day for the last week <laughs> and there's no, there's no way that unless you have all the pineapple trees fruiting at the same time that you could do that all the time. But if I did that for a, for a, maybe a two week process, I'd get away with that, but I couldn't do it all year. You know, like th- there is a certain time in a certain season that you get these fruits you know, naturally maturing and ripening. And, and, you know, like you're saying, and when you're in uh, South Carolina, you just don't have that or you, or where you are in outside Salt Lake city, you just don't have that because of the seasonal stuff at the moment. But perhaps once you get into summer, there'll be seasonal fruiting stuff. And the summer is the time that maybe we should be eating fruit and, you know, we should be eating seasonally, but it's giving our body that time to, you know, detox from fruit and detox from sugar and like getting our blood sugar stable again. So yeah, definitely down here in the tropical places, there's a lot more tropical fruit. I struggle to find a good apple, (laughs) (laughs) which I, you know, I'm a, I'm a British guy. So I love a good apple, you know, a summer apple from a a UK orchard is amazing, but it's, um, I, I think you've struggled to find a lot of really good quality, natural growing food in many, many places now. Yeah, I think that's a really thoughtful answer. And I wish more people would just consider that. I contrast that, like trying to live, you know, plant-based on the land in pretty much everywhere that I've ever found versus I think about the couple that I saw on the beach in December Mm -hmm. and they're fishing. And yeah, they're they're working, but working for them is casting a line and sitting in a chair on the beach. And you know, surely they're going to catch, you know, two or three fish that could be complete meal for the rest of the day. They could catch yeah. everything they need without doing nearly as much work as somebody living plant-based if it's even mm. possible. So I think when we're yeah. trying to construct our diets, I wish more people would consider that and how we evolved through all of that. Um, going mm. back to your podcast, you have definitely focused your podcast in, in that space. You've interviewed a lot of people who are, you know, uncovering the, the agenda of the anti-meat, you mm. know, kind of push Dr. Bill Schindler, Belinda Fecky, absolutely amazing yeah. in that way for doing all her research on the Seventh-day Adventist church and John Harvey Kellogg and all that stuff. You also had a very unique opportunity in one of your episodes to interview a vegan who was very, mm. very, very passionate about being vegan and was yeah. what, what I would consider the vibe that I got from that interview was that she was almost c- kind of trying to convert you during the interview. I, 
I, I don't know if that's true. I mm, really respect yeah. her, first of all, for coming on your show and being as passionate as she is. I, I have a huge amount of respect for her. I think people can do whatever they want. I thought that you handled that conversation very, very well. I'm partially jealous I because I, that, I, I can't find a vegan that wants to come on her show. Um, if, yeah. if you're listening and you're vegan and you want to come on the show and be interviewed, I'd love to just have a conversation. <laughs> um, but as of now, I can't find one. And so uh, tell us a little bit about that episode, how that conversation went, how that mm. came about. And that's an episode I'm going to tag in our show notes so people can go find it because I thought it was I thought it was interesting I think to be in the carnivore world you need to really understand what people on the opposite end of the aisle are really mm. thinking in their thought process so you can make a really good decision yeah for sure I mean that, that was Danielle Arsenault and she's great she's lovely by the way she's got a company called Pacha Vega and she focuses on how you know to, to make veganism tasty and make nice recipes you know which you know it needs all the help it can get there so <laughs> I, um, I think that that was at the beginning of my, that was episode nine or 10. I can't remember. I think, I think, I think sort it was of just nine. getting, yeah. And, and I'd reached out to a few people and I, and she actually asked to come on the show. She knew one of the previous guests. And so, you know, I said, yeah, that'd be great. And I was coming from a genuine area of curiosity there because I was still, I hadn't discovered at that stage, I hadn't discovered Dr. Anthony Chafee and a few of these things. And I was still skeptical about meat or no, I was still skeptical about veganism but I wasn't you know I, I didn't want I couldn't I wasn't coming from a, a position of really having looked at stuff at that stage so I was skeptical I was very very skeptical and I, I just tried to keep it as you know as inquisitive as possible there was nothing there was nothing incredibly challenging there it was just curiosity around I asked her one of the questions, if I can remember, it was, you know, wouldn't you agree that in the Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemispheres or the Poles, then we wouldn't have access to plants? Just like you're saying, we wouldn't have access to plants throughout the year, all throughout the year. So in order to eat, you know, it wouldn't be possible to eat a vegan diet everywhere. So how could we possibly have been vegans or in the past? Animals are essentially a store of food for us in that time. So we're, you know, our teeth are... Uh, we have the variation of teeth to eat plants and eat animals. We have the variation of our, our gut is shortened because we're more efficient at digesting meat, which has a higher nutrient content. So we don't need to digest this really high fibrous stuff. And a lot of the times when I put that to her, the answers were, you know, I understand that, but we don't have to eat meat in this modern society. You know, it's wrong to eat meat. And it's the moral, moral standpoint that many vegans come from. And I would never berate that. You know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a, you know, a noble point to come from, you know, that, that's fine. Like if that's your, that's your choice and that's your right to have that choice. Um, so coming from that angle, there's very little argument you can put to that. I mean, apart from the fact that if you go from the angle of, you know, there are, there are many, many animals killed in plant agriculture every year. Plant agriculture is not death free. You know, there are many, like all of the pesticides and herbicides and everything that we spray on crops that kills an incredible amount of wildlife. We, every time a combine harvester goes through a field of maize that kills a load of small animals or many animals have to be killed to stop them being pests for crops. Birds have to be shot all of this stuff in between. So it neither system is death free. So, you know, she, she's great. You know, D D Danielle, she stands by her principles and she lives the life of a, of an avid vegan. And it was interesting to hear some of her points. And she did come with some of these 
interesting points, you know, that you do need to sprout seeds in order to get the nutrients from them. And, you know, there is a certain amount of technological input that as a vegan, you need to be doing. And maybe like Bill Schindler says, Dr. Bill Schindler says, we need this incredible amount of technological intervention in order to make veganism a viable way of nutrition. So we need people like Danielle. If people want to go into veganism, we need them, people like Danielle to show them at least a, a load of the way and how we you need to be thinking about vegan uh, above and beyond, you know, Oreos are vegan. Doesn't mean they're good for you. So that that level of stuff. And, you know, I appreciated her her um her love for veganism, you know, and her love of sustainability and she lives in Nicaragua now she lives on a little island called Omatepe in in Nicaragua and it's it's amazing she lives a great life but for many people that's not realistic it's just not realistic and to preach that message that it is a realistic message then I think it misguides many many people the most realistic thing I see in in today's modern society is you eat the most nutritiously dense thing which is most devoid of chemicals that you can find and a lot of the times that's animal products so Many of these arguments I put to her and and she had rebuttals for some of the stuff and some of the stuff's not. And and I think I learned a little bit about a little bit more about veganism. And I think she went away. She sent me a message afterwards. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying, saying that I had prompted her to at least put go back and do her research again because she didn't feel like she had put her arguments across efficiently. So that I think is the main goal from all of this stuff is having a better understanding from each side you know, what are the benefits and drawbacks from each of this stuff? And I think to preach veganism as a healthier way of eating is a very dangerous method, message. But I think to preach it as um, a way that you are doing what you want to do with your body, I think there's power in that. Yeah. And I think I think everyone should have that power to do whatever they want with their body yeah. free of intervention. I agree. Um I I appreciated the conversation. I appreciated the the way that you hosted it. It was not confrontational, which I I I don't really love. Um and mm. and I really, you know, I really try to consider people's points and I I there's just there's something different about the way Dr. Bill Schindler, Dr. Anthony Chafee Dr. And Natalie E. West, Dr. Mickey Bendor, like people that really understand this stuff when they're explaining things, it, it ties in so many different things. And I walk away from those conversations having less questions about stuff. And I mm. hear her conversation and it's like, okay, you responded this, but now I've got five more questions. Like that doesn't really mm. make a lot of sense in different mm. contexts. And so I, again, I, it's a conversation I appreciated. I didn't walk away from that thinking like, wow, I'd really miss radishes and spinach and beets. And like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, but, yeah. but I, I appreciate that you went there and you handled it in a very respectful way. Before we got onto this Thanks, call, man. you, you mentioned that you have not been in the low carbohydrate and keto and carnivore space for very long yet. Mm. Here you are producing content and you're putting mm. your, your show out there and like it or not, like, yeah, you might not be Joe Rogan. We not might not be Joe Rogan, but we are influencing mm. people in a certain way, whether we want to consider ourselves as quote unquote, social media influencers, you're putting a message out there and you're influencing people in some way. What does that mean to you? Sure. Big question. Big question. What does it mean to me? It It's Cathartic in, cathartic in many ways because it helps me refine my ideas. It helps it helps actually show me where my thinking is wrong, and I'm coming into contact with more and more ideas. And then on from there to be able to feel like I'm actually helping people understand a little bit more about the field of nutrition and a little bit the field of health 
is is massive for me, especially in terms of pushing back against these narratives that I believe to be harmful to people. Because if someone does, if if I don't stand up, and the person next to me doesn't stand up, then who's going to stand up? You know, there it, it, it comes a point where you where if you believe something, then there's a certain amount of responsibility on you to go after that and see if you're right in that, because I may not be right, but I'm only going to be able to find out by speaking to people and finding information. And to, to be able to put that message across to people about firstly, to have a curiosity and to question what you're hearing in the mainstream media. I think that's the main thing that I wanted to, to I hear stuff on podcasts sometimes and I think I don't agree with that. And so I can either sit there not agreeing and getting in a half, or I can hunt for the information, hunt for the truth. And if I feel like I found the information, find the truth, then I can put that out there for someone else to rebut and say, hey, I don't believe that's true. And I can say, oh, that's interesting. Why don't you believe that's true? So it's this, I, I feel like I'm helping creating dialogue and creating dialogue now is super important, especially when you have an increase of censorship, an increase of big tech wanting to shut down conversations. And unless we have these conversations, then the big media and the big narratives win. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I love that answer. This has been such an amazing conversation. I really love your show. I love all of your content. Finley McLaren, where would you like to go to, um, where would you like people to go, excuse me, to find you <laughs> and connect with you and your work? Fantastic, mate. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been it's been epic. I wish um, I wish I could ask you more questions, but I'm going to get to ask you questions in next week. Actually, you're going to be coming on Chatting Fit. We're going to flip it. That's some cross pollination. So, um, <laughs> where can people find me? So, my Instagram is at Finley Squats underscore Finley and Squats, and then we've got our Instagram page, which is at Chatting Fit. And then we've got our YouTube page, which is at Chatting Fit as well. So there's extracts from the podcast on the YouTube page, as well as some shorts and stuff on there. And then we've got all of the podcasting apps. So Spotify, Apple, Chatbox, um, Amazon, all the main ones. If you just Google Chatting Fit, then it'll come up. Okay. So that's where people can find me. That's great. Dude, we will link that in the show notes. Finley McLaren with the awesome voice, the awesome name, and an awesome <laughs> message. Thank you so very much for everything that you do. Um, I, I can tell you I can relate to having that same kind of feeling of like, what what the hell can I do? There's so many other you know people out there putting out great shows that have great guests and great content, and you, you almost don't feel like you have a voice, and, and you have overcome that. I think we dropped. Did we drop again? <laughs> Oh, man. Well, we've experienced some technical difficulties in the show, and I hope you can hear me. But Finley McLaren, thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I think we're dropping out a little bit there. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium 
podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form, very informative and concise episodes called the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Balanced Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Balanced Body Radio.